I want to uh, turn your attention to some old familiar scripture, and I'm not quite sure why this scripture was brought to my attention that just uh, a short time ago, perhaps it will some way intertwine itself in the message God only knows. 16th chapter of St. Matthew, <laughs> I want to call to your attention the great declaration, a confession that Peter made when Jesus was asking the question, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And then he asked the question directly to the uh, surrounding disciples and said, all right, that's their answer. Uh, who do ye say that I am? What, what do you say about all of this? And then Peter's great declaration as he begins to say, under the inspiration of the Spirit, revelation out to Christ, a son of the living God. And then Jesus answered, starting in with the 17th verse, Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Nineteen particularly, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Of course, there's no small controversy on uh, some of the main portions of this scripture. These scriptures, just let me throw it out to you. Some say that the church was built upon Peter, and uh, that others say that the church was built upon the rock, and that rock was Christ Jesus. Of course, we ascribe to the latter. We believe that it's built upon the rock, not upon Peter. And that rock, of course, was Jesus. Others say that he, when he said, I will build my church, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Simply, some say that meant the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. Others, of course, hold to the belief that he was still addressing concerning the rock, that the gates of hell would not prevail against the rock. Uh, of course, they used the argument, and I kind of ascribe to the latter, that they used the argument that the church has been prevailed against. It has not went down in full defeat, but uh, the powers of hell have prevailed against it, have said it at naught, down through the dark ages, in a sense almost extinguished it. And so to hold on to God's word, We'd have to say that it's st still talking about the rock. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the rock, which is Christ Jesus. He's victor. He always has been, and he always will be. But I want to call your attention to this. I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever thou shalt bound, bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There is, again, two beliefs on that. One belief that these keys were given unto Peter and to Peter alone and that he took those keys and unlocked the door of course to Israel when he preached the message and then again unlocked it to the Gentiles when he preached the message household of Cornelius and then of course others subscribed to the fact that the keys were given and he was addressing the church 
and the keys were given to the church. The keys, of course, the word was given to the church. And the church has no authority outside the word. And by the word, people will be bound on earth. And by the word, it'll be bound in heaven. By the word, it'll be loose on earth. By that same word, it'll be loose in heaven. Now, if you want to know where they possibly get uh, that thinking, why, well, you might just kind of turn over after a while, mark it out, to the 18th chapter from about the 15th and 19th verse where Jesus is giving something to be done about the order of the church and uh, telling what should be done and how matters should be handled. We've dealt on this where you have off against your fellow man and on and on it goes. And then he ends that. Uh, let me see if I can just find it and read it. Then he ends that uh, with almost the same declaration that he had given here. He ends that with, Verily I say unto you, now he had to be talking about the church because everything else he had said uh, was concerning the church. If you neglect to hear the church, hear it, tell it to the church. They neglect to hear the church. Uh, let him be as a publican. And then he goes on to say, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So look at that right real carefully and think about it, because we're going to evaluate ourselves this morning. And the only proper way to evaluate ourselves is through and by the Word of God. And uh, just say in a sense that this was the meaning. Take it if you want to say that out of context. But just say that God has placed in the church the Word, and man is to be judged by that Word, and that Word can bind and that Word can loose. And whatsoever it binds on earth, if man continues that way, when we enter into the kingdom of God, it'll be bound there. Whosoever it binds, it'll be bound there. Whosoever it loose, let the Word of God loose us, then when we enter into the kingdom of God, we'll be loosed in the kingdom of God. But we want to look on this morning, and God woke me up early this morning and spoke this to my heart. As he said, there is a need because of the seriousness of the hour and the seriousness of the messages that I have caused to be brought forth from the mouth of not only one or two, but almost every minister uh, concerning the things I'm, I am demanding, there is a need before we go any farther of self-examination. Now, when we get into the depth of the Word and the demands of God, and they begin to stir us up and take some of our play pretties away from us and demand a closer walk with God, willingly, in a sense, why, uh, then we enter into some serious quarters, some halls that we haven't walked down, some things we haven't explored and placed begins to cringe and cry, and it, of course, don't want to be subjected or submissive to the Word. Remember, again, it is the Word. God placed it in the church. It is the key. It is the Word. It can bind your life, or it can loose your life one way or the other. And God placed that in the church, and God's Word is there. Can't go anyplace else for God's Word. You say, well, I have the Bible. Sure you do, the written word of God. But God has foreordained that he has established, even as the apostles, churches are gathering places where the Holy Spirit of God moves 
upon a called individual and revelation opens up that word. And then that word starts and begins to sweep from our doorsteps and sweeping from the uh, dark places of our heart begins to sweep it and sweep it clear. And God made me aware that if we're not careful, all of us, that when these demands begin to be made, why, if we're not careful, we will pick out certain individuals that we feel like that these words go far. And there isn't any doubt that God levels things and words, cries aloud, not to put down, but to some way, get man to reconcile himself with God and get him back into the firm position that he left. God doesn't minister or cause ministers to minister because he is sadistic or because they are sadistic, but he causes ministry to come because of his love and his concern about souls and souls of individuals. And as I said before, when we enter in, and God is aware of this because he's beginning to open the doors and he's beginning to peel back the covers and he's beginning to challenge our life and open up unto us as a church areas which needs to be corrected. And of course flesh, if it can, will hide from us the things God is saying to us. How? By carefully concealing our own failures with the glaring, glowing errors of others. And this is one thing that God wants us to look at and look at hard this morning, self-examination. I think it is so necessary, God thinks it is so necessary, that if we could... You know, they used to put blinders. I don't know, Brother Bud, you remember that? They used to put blinders on the horses when you were going down the corn row to keep them from looking over the side and getting a hold of something that's on the side because he wanted their eyes right straight ahead. I wish some way God could put blinders on us so that we could see nothing but straight ahead and see nothing but him and hear only what he's talking to us about this morning. Let the word fall where it may. I don't really believe it needs too much help from us as to pointing it where it ought to go. Now, there is a need of self-examination simply because of our Adamic nature. How many of you still have an Adamic nature? Is there anybody here that's throwing off that and you don't have it anymore? If this is the case, you won't need to listen to a thing I have to say because your divine nature is predominant. You don't have this one anymore and you don't have to listen to a thing I have to say. But if you realize you're still living in this Adamic nature and that once in a while, maybe just that many times out of that many, it gains control. Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe it's that many times. Amen? Now, if this is the case, you need to listen to it because self-examination is needed because we do have an Adamic nature. We do have a nature, and Jeremiah describes it as this. As he says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick are wicked, and who can know it? 
You see, what we don't want to realize is a lot of times our heart, our old heart, so to speak, is deceitful. You know, one, there's three deceitful things in the world of great deceivers, and one of them is man himself. Let no man deceive himself. And Jeremiah is pointing it out and said, Now, your heart is deceitful above all things. In other words, your heart and your thinking will deceive you. It'll make you think things that are not in your life, and it'll cause you to think things are there when they're not there. So it's a deceitful thing, and it's desperately sick, or it's wicked, and there's no healing virtue for it, only the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he says, who can know it? There's none of us that can actually know our hearts until by the Spirit breathes upon the Word, and then the Word opens up the things that's in our heart. And you see, if the devil can keep us blinded by what we call our little failures, because there's glaring examples of great failures upon minds and hearts of others, then he has accomplished his purpose. He has deceived us. And uh, then, knowing that we do have a deceitful heart, that it will deceive us, that it will make us think maybe we're someplace where we're not, and then once we attain someplace in God, it'll just reverse itself and tell us we're not there. So it's a deceitful thing. You can't win with it. You hear me? I said you can't win with it. It is a deceitful thing. And nobody can know what lurks way down deep inside but the Spirit of God. And that's why His Word is there to burst and pull the covers back and unveil the intents of the heart. Now, He does this because He loves Did you know that? When God makes us face ourselves and see the ugliness of our own heart, it is not because that He is sadistic and wants to see us feel bad or suffer. He does that because He has a divine plan for us, and He has a place for us, and He wants us to nestle into that place, and He knows that we cannot, as long as there's rough edges there, that have never been knocked off by His Word. And I'm going to say it again, because God breathed it in my heart. He lets us to know that if we're not careful, when the power of God comes and the Word comes, we'll suck it off and point the finger at somebody else and never see our own needs. And God doesn't want this. It is not the fact that they are and aren't are not guilty. That's not the issue at all. The issue is, what about your own heart? What about your own life? Where is it? And do you really desire God's Word? God's Word to open your eyes. The Bible says there were such people who had eyes to see, but they couldn't see, and ears to hear, but they couldn't hear. This was only damning nature that could not be acquainted and get acquainted with the Spirit of God. And there's but one way, I'll say it again, one way that man can know his heart, and that is when they open up their ears, let the Spirit open up their ears, and let them listen to what God is saying, not to somebody else, but to us. What does he want out of all these challenging issues 
what does he want out of us? Is there not anything in any of these messages that reach our heart? You see, that's the question we need to ask. And we need to say, God, I'm not sure. You see, your heart is deceitful and it's desperately sick and wicked and you can't know it. And God tells us then to put ourselves to a test. How many is willing this morning to allow yourself to be put to a test? By God's Word, not by what the preacher says, that I'm going to use words that are in the Bible that will cause us to put ourselves to a test. Psalm 77 and 6, the psalmist David in trouble says, I call to remembrance my song in the night. I communed with my own heart. In other words, I talked things over with my own heart. That sounds like you're talking to yourself, doesn't it? And you are, and you should. I communed with mine own heart, and my spirit made diligent search. You see, there again was the spirit, the move. I began to mull over my position in God. Paul is saying, I remembered my song in the night. I had memories of what it was when God came down and blessed me. But now I am in trouble. I'm trying to remember how I got a hold of God those days. And then he says, I communed. I talked it over with myself. And I, my spirit made diligent search. You see, and pardon me for saying this, but you see, so many times we are busy searching, searching for the faults and failures of others, unintentionally maybe, but nevertheless happening until we ourselves fail to diligently search our life and let the Spirit search. Pull the covers back. Get the broom and begin to sweep it and begin to talk to yourself and to your heart. Say, heart, are you right? Are you thinking right? Are you acting right? Are you feeling right? Is everything all right? And then let that spirit make a diligent search. What's diligent search? That means anxious and determined to find whatever is wrong in anything. I have hearted search. My wife gets aggravated sometimes at me when I say, where is something? And she'll tell me exactly where it is. And because my ears are not open to what she's saying, I begin to ramsack through everything. And you see, I just open this door and look and open that door and look, open the other door and look, where if I had made a diligent search and really searched for it, I would have found it the first time I went and the first place I went. You see, there's a whole lot of us that's running to and fro trying to find a place in our lives that we ought to be and we're just half-heartedly searching for something because place really says you don't really want to know what else God is expecting out of you. And then old pride will say, well, after all, compared to so-and-so, aren't you just a pretty good old Joe? And possibly compared to them, maybe you are. But is this what God is wanting? Is he actually asking this or is he not saying, examine yourself and see if there isn't something in there that God doesn't particularly care about? And Lamentation says, let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. And then 1 Corinthians 
says it this way, examine yourself whether ye be in the faith. Now then, this is interesting because for the most part, Pentecostals have taken, and apostolics especially, have taken this word and said, sure, I'm in the faith. How do you know you are? Because I've been baptized in Jesus' name. I've repented. I've received the Holy Ghost, and I've spoken in tongues. But a careful examination of that word, examine yourself whether you be in the faith and prove your own selves whether you be in the faith. That word faith comes from the Greek word pistis, which means a firm conviction, an acknowledgement of God's truth. Number two, a personal surrender to Him. And number three, a conduct inspired by such surrender. Okay, let's look at that again now. Examine yourself as to whether you really have a firm conviction and acknowledgement that God is God over all. Search that one out first. Examine yourself, see. You will actually know whether you have carried this out or not by the Spirit, by the Word of God. And then ask yourself, have you made a personal surrender to Him? Sure I have. I went and I asked the Lord to forgive me in an altar. I knelt by my bedside, or I just openly opened my arms where I was at, and I accepted Him. Is this actually a personal surrender? Or is this only an admission that you needed God? Because that personal surrender, with it would come a conduct inspired by such surrender. In other words, examine yourself and see if through what you term a personal surrender, if your conduct, a certain change, or an action has been inspired by that surrender. If it hasn't, then you have not been in the faith. You are not in the faith as per se. And Jesus is definitely wanting us to make that examination and ask ourselves whether we be in the faith. Prove or test. Put to test your own life. In other words, get brother, sister, so-and-so out of the mirror, put yourself there, and make a test of your life as to whether you are in the faith or not. As to whether you have acknowledged God with a firm conviction that He is the answer to every problem you have. And as to whether you have made a personal surrender to Him and whether there's been a conduct inspired by that personal surrender. I'll say it, I've said it once and I'll say it again. When man finds God, and when man finds him the way he ought to, there will be certain areas in his life that will never be the same. And this is what God is asking for. He expects something to change in our life when he comes in. Oh, now, it's easy for us to judge outwardly and look and say, so-and-so hasn't changed. They still go the same places they go, and they shouldn't. They still wear the same clothes they used to wear, and there should be a difference. And they still run with the same company they always did, and they should not. And we see all of these things, and let me ask you way down in the secret corners of our heart, has 
our attitude toward our brother, our sister, and our gossip and all of this running down and backbiting has God really changed that inside of us. Isn't it just as easy now to lay your brother or sister upon the operating table and perform an operation on them until you breathe all the breath out of them and all the blood comes from them? Is it just as easy to do that now as it used to be? If it is, there has, there's something lacking. Now I'm asking you, examine yourself. Is it just as easy to take up your time with frivolous little things has the faith of God inspired any more prayer in your life, any more righteousness in your life? I'm talking about things man can't see, but God sees, and He tries to reveal them to you. Self-examination. Because I don't believe that God has hardly started with us when it comes to the depth of messages that would challenge us as to righteous living. But I think he is so concerned about us, and I'm saying us, and I want you to hear me. I'm saying us, he is so, so concerned about us, trying to push this off on somebody else, that he wants every child of God to take his part of the dose of medicine. Now we need to discern, and we also need to prove. 1 Corinthians says, For if we would judge or discern what's in ourselves, we wouldn't be judged. In other words, there is always judgment. God sometimes pronounces judgment. And what he's really saying is self-judgment. If we would judge ourselves what is good, what is right, if we would make this evaluation by the help of the Spirit, then self-judgment we could avoid chastisement. But if we let God do the judging, chastisement simply has to come. And it will come. And we saw it time and time again. And pardon me, I don't believe we saw anything as to what we are going to see and that in the near future. Because if God cannot get us to judge ourselves and make that condemnation come where we can get it under the blood, then He is going to judge us. And when He does, he has to chastise. And Galatians 6, 4 says, Let every man scrutinize or test or examine his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself and not in another. In other words, what he's trying to say is if you will just get yourself upon the block and begin to do what God asks you to do, then you can have a personal satisfaction out of the things that you are doing that's commendable and you won't have to make a comparison to your works with your brothers in order to make you stand up just a little bit tall. You see, all times now, stay with me, because you know all times we are guilty. When God comes and says, I want you to see, brother or sister, what's in your life. Look at it. And we look well and hard at it, and then what's the first thing that we think about? You know as well as I do. We look around and our eyes will dart and our memory wheels will begin to turn and we'll try to find somebody that doesn't seem to be living as good a life as we are and we'll stand up beside him and say, Yeah, Lord, but look, don't I compare a little better than he does? 
You see, the scripture is so true in there when it says those words now, when it says examine yourself, whether you be in the faith, you need to remember that, and then to how to man prove his own work, and then he can rejoice because what he does is commendable. He won't have to make a comparison, not ever. And we should never, none of us ever be guilty of that, but I would dare say that 99% of us immediately will do that. Maybe we recognize it, and maybe we ask for forgiveness. And as long as we are making comparison with our lives, spiritually speaking, with somebody else's, God can never open the door and get into that heart the way He wants to. Because we're always hiding behind that thing. Look how we live compared to how they live. And look what we do compared to what they do. And we're making a comparison. And we're rejoicing not in ourselves so much, but in the fact that we're just a little bit better than they are, so to speak. And he's telling us here in Galatians, now, why don't you get out from it, do something, examine yourself, do something that is commendable, and forget about comparing what you do with somebody else. Because I'm going to go to you this one thing. When God calls you up to the kingdom of God and the judgment seat of God, he is not going to let you stand by brother or sister so-and-so and say, compared to them, you're good. What he's going to do is line you up with this word and say, compared to that, where do you stand? You see, comparison in our lives is who we are and what we are. Here's what God is asking. There isn't any doubt that many of us are higher up on spiritual stairs or many of you higher up on spiritual stairs than others. But that is not self-examination. If you are not careful, the rungs of the ladder will break and you'll be right down at the bottom, smack dab there without any height at all. Of course, you're comparing yourself not with the Word, but it's to the life somebody else has lived. And Galatians is saying, the Apostle Paul is saying to them, you shouldn't do this. In fact, you can't get by with it. And then, after doing this, how do we deal with what we find? What do you do about it? Once you have really scrutinized and, and, and scanned and talked over and examined and uh, tried to find really whether you're in the faith or not, and after doing all of this, we're bound to come up short somewhere. That is, if we've done it like we ought to, we're bound to come up short somewhere in some areas. Now, how do we deal with this? And turn my feet unto thy testimony. In other words, I have thought about those things that were lacking in my life, I thought about the ways in which I was living, and in thinking about that, I could not sit down in the same old cocksure place where I was and be satisfied. I thought about where I was, and then I turned my feet around and got them on your testimonies, not yours, not mine. There's some examples of this. The Apostle Peter, our disciple Peter, said in Mark about the 14th chapter, said the second time, the cock crew and Peter called to mind. Peter called to mind the words that Jesus said unto him, 
And these were the words, Before the cock crows twice, thou shalt deny me three times or thrice. And when he thought thereon, you see, Peter was standing there allowing the gates of heaven to flood his soul and he thought on the words that Jesus said and when he thought thereon and heard the cock crow, the Bible says he wept. He could not sit there in that sin and debauchery with that awful deed that he had done. He could not sit there and feel good about it and say, oh, well, I made a mistake. There was something churned in his heart and he thought on it and then he began to weep. And you'll find that was the turning point for Peter. That was something that made the coward Peter a brave man because he thought on his mistake. He thought on his failure. He thought on his sin. And he said, I believe in his heart and if there's some way I can get a hold of enough power, I'll never do that to my Lord anymore. And he never did. He had the opportunity. They called him in question and said, Now, Peter, you deny your Lord. You know, Peter, you did it once. And the Lord forgive you. Come on, you're with me? You're how the devil talks? Now, you deny your Lord. You did it once, and it wasn't so bad. You deny your Lord. And you'll be all right. But if you don't, we're going to crucify you just like we did him. That was Peter's choice. Now, if he hadn't thought on those words, if he hadn't been called to his mind what Jesus said, and he hadn't thought of them, and then wept over them, no doubt Peter would have made the same mistake. And he was so confident and had a personal conviction, and it so changed his actions. You see, here's a turnaround. Here's Peter. He was, had a conduct that was inspired by that personal surrender to God. And Peter's words were this. Crucify me, but don't crucify me the way you did him. Crucify me upside down, because I'm not worthy to suffer in the same way. I thought on those things and I wept. You see, when we actually let God open our understanding as to what His demands is and let Him show us our failures and think on those things and let a godly sorrow in a heart work of repentance, we will not complete the same action and mistakes again. But if we just simply let him prick us a little bit in our heart and on an, on, a, on an emotional plane just stand up and say, I'll never do it again and never actually think on the wrong that it was to our Savior and the wrong it was to our brother or sister and just depend upon God's blood, God's grace and just push it aside or then nine chances to ten or ten to ten, we'll do the same thing again. But Peter actually thought. You say, well, he didn't have much time. It don't take much time for a heart to really get a hold of God's heart. And God can read our thoughts in a moment. You know what takes us so long sometimes to really get through and get, get victory? It's simply because our heart hasn't been doing any talking at all. 
our mouth and our tongue has wagged and our mouth has formed words and our heart has never said anything. And Jesus is there for hours at a time listening while we pray and while we prevail, so to speak, or try to prevail, Jesus is there listening for one slight utterance of the heart to actually say from the heart, I'm going to make a change. I've got to make a change. You see, that's what he heard from Peter when Peter thought thereon. I don't know what words that he spoke in it, but his mind, his cogs in his uh, wheels in his mind was going around. And Peter began to think upon what Jesus had said. And then he thought on the injustice that it was to Jesus. And then things began to change. And Peter began to openly weep. And then called to the same task. At the same time, almost uh, a few years later, called to the same task. Just stand and said, now Peter, make up your mind this time. But his mind was made up after he thought on those things. His mind was made up. Peter didn't make up his mind right then. It had been made up ever since he had wronged his Jesus. And then we have the old familiar story of uh, the prodigal son in Luke 15, 17, somewhere about that, and said, When he came to himself, he said, How many hard servants of my fathers have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? In other words, he was reminiscing. Now, if you just think back, this was her son that had been in the father's house. This was typical of a Christian. This was typical of somebody that had set his feet under the father's table and had been cloned by the father and had everything supplied by the father and an inheritance promised to him. And he had said, I want it all. I want it all. I want to leave. And this is a son. Remember, this is God's son. This is a Christian. This is not an out-and-out -out sinner. And then after he'd been brought down to the lowest, the only time God could talk to him, he began to think in his heart. He began to examine himself. He began to talk to himself. He began to open his heart and mind. And there he saw how foolish he was to lay there in a pig's pen and all the hard servants had more than enough to eat. And there he was in a pig's pen with nothing. And friend, there's a world over of Christians at one time shouted the joy of salvation and had the power of God in their life and the Word of God in their life and have taken their substance and went into the world and wasted it and they're still in a pig pen and they will not examine their lives and will not see that the hard servants in their father's house have more than enough and they're starving to death and they won't open their eyes and their mind and their heart and realize what it's all about. We will not make a thorough self-examination of our lives. And a man over here wants to while be preaching. And back there too. We sometimes will not make a thorough search of our lives. We will not let a divine presence of God open up that heart to make us see where we stand. And there's people that are actually starving spiritually speaking, starving. And they will not let God and commune with their own self and let God tell them what they need. And there's people that's wretched and naked in a sense, spiritually speaking, and they'll sit in their nakedness and walk the foolish paths of the world and let the devil rob them of all their spiritual clothing and they'll still sit there and won't examine their lives and come to the realization of God and come back again. Hallelujah. 
Every day the devil is taking from us our life and our food and our substance. Every day we're dying, some of us, spiritually. And we're trying our best to find somebody in our congregation and in our church to blame for where we're at. And when there's no one actually to blame, there's no man that can separate us from the love of the eternal God. It should not. And it could not. And a self-examination is so necessary. Has to see whether it is that individual's fault or the preacher's fault or whether it is our fault. Paul says, who can separate me from the love of God? And then he begins to name over uh, things. And he said, none of these. None of these. The only person that can separate us from God is just like the story in the prodigal son. The only way that boy could have ever left home is for him to take his package and his suitcase and go. That's the only way. Of course, he tried to blame somebody, tried to blame his father, tried to say, your rules are too rigid. You're demanding too much out of me. The world offers far more. And after all, that's what I need. But finally, he came to himself. And he began to reason with himself. Oh, God help the church to get to that place. You hear me? God help us to get to that place when we begin to reason with ourselves and examine ourselves and prove ourselves and see if we still have that firm conviction, a personal surrender, and actions characterized by that surrender. And he began to say, Why, my servants, I'm a son. You see, he was still a son. Oh, I realize you... If you're not careful, you're going to think, think I'm Baptist. But I'm not. He was still a son. He still had some place there in the Father's house. And he said, why? He, he, he says that you're hard servants of my Father's house. Of my Father's house. He still knew where his Father's house was. He still remembered all the goodies that was there. And friend, let me tell you something when the devil gets through with you and gets through rolling you around and robbing you of everything that you have and taking your clothes off of you and uh, letting you sit in the pig pen, you're going to forget about those rigid rules of the Father and you're just going to remember the good food in the Father's house and the joy that's in the Father's house and the glory that's in the Father's house. Hallelujah. And that is exactly if we're not careful what God's going to have to do to some of us. It ought not to be. It should never have to be that we would simply have to go out into the world and be reduced to scum. Oh boy, we could get our minds off of the rigid so-called rules that the Father has placed upon us until it simply obscures the joy and the peace and the comfort and the clothing that God has for us. And more than anything else, the covering and the protection that He surrounds. Hallelujah. 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 Praise God. Hallelujah. I'd rather sit and listen to what he has to say I have to do and my flesh cringes than to ever come out from under that roof and that protecting power 
and leave myself to the heirs of the adversary and let them do what they will to me. I would rather listen to what God has to say and be in the Father's house where I can sit down and eat and drink and enjoy the blessings of God and to be reduced to scum and in a pig's pen and a pigsty. Now the prodigal son didn't recognize this until he come to the bottom but from the time he left his father's house he was going down, down, down. You follow his, follow his path. There's not one time he ever made an upward climb. From the time he left, he started squandering and wasting. And never was it ever replenished. Amen. Am I talking to anybody this morning? Am I getting to any hearts this morning? If you're not careful, once you get out from under the Father's roof, he said, why, I... They've got bread enough to spare, and here I'm perishing with hunger. And then after mulling it over in his mind and examining himself, and he finally saw he wasn't the big dude of the world that he thought he was. He wasn't that great big popular individual that, that could just the beck and call somebody would come. He finally come to realize that he was naked and blind and poor, and miserable and had need of all things and once he recognized that and that door was open and he made his self-examination he said I will arise and go to my father's house hallelujah and there he went and standing there waiting on him was the father thank God ready to welcome him with open arms and set him there where he should be you see God's love is so great and so powerful that all he asked is just to examine yourself. I don't ask you, he says, to examine yourself so I can judge you and put a penalty on you. I just ask you to examine yourself so you'll come to the Father's house and get what you need. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Now then, after we have made a complete examination, after we have used these scriptures and these things that we have given as examples, I wonder if we would dare, I'll try to get through in a minute, to put ourselves under divine inspection. I mean, put out all stuff. Let ever cover be ripped off him. Because God is able to do that. There's almost David one time. You have to go back to him because he was a man after God's own heart and you have to find out the reason. Because as far as sinning is concerned and doing horrible things, I suppose he did as many as anybody else. He was on again, off again in a sense as far as his action is concerned. But inside him was a heart that needs to be inside of every child of God. And that's to recognize that and examine himself. And Psalms 20, 26 and 2, he says, Examine me, O Lord and prove me and try the reins of try the reins and my heart examine me O lord examine me lord can you i wonder if we can say that this morning lord examine me if there's something hid from mine eyes reveal it unto me before i leave this building this morning open mine eyes to this because, God, if I don't know it, I can't get it under the blood where it belongs. And if I know it, I can get it under the blood at the altar somewhere. 
Hallelujah. Open it up, Lord. Open it up. And then Job says, Let me be weighed in an even balance. In other words, Job said, Lord, get me out from my tormentors from those out there that judge me because they don't give a just weight. And friend, the world, when they weigh you, won't give you a just weight. They'll tip the scales to their side at its time. And you'll come up short as far as they're concerned. Every time Jesus himself came up short in the eyes of the world, and Job said, let me be weighed in an even balance that God may know my integrity. That God may know my heart in a sense. That God may know what I want. Let me be weighed by an even balance. Let me come before God and let Him weigh me and see where I stand with Him. You see, oftentimes we're open to the scrutiny and the weight of the world and we put ourselves in it. And we listen to their so-called just appropriations of our life. And we listen to them as they tear us apart and tear a brother or sister apart. And that's not an even weight. That's not an even balance. If you want to really be judged right and judged evenly, come as David did and say, Lord, search my heart, arrange my thinking. And God, don't let me leave. Don't let anything lurk back there in the halls of misery in my heart until you let it be known unto me that I might search and seek thee and find you. Psalms 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Notice he says, Search me now. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And then lead me in the way everlasting. Notice, Search me. Then try me. And then lead me. Hallelujah. Search me, Lord. And then try me. And then whenever you see I've come up short, lead me to thine everlasting rock of salvation. Take my hand and lead me there. God, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go. Search me. Try me. Then take me by the hand because I've lost my way. And lead me in that everlasting way. Hallelujah. After all these things in closing, Zechariah 13, 9 says, I will bring the third part through the fire. I will refine them with silver as refined. You can't escape. You can't escape the scrutiny of God. You'll either let Him examine you, you examine yourself, and then let Him examine you here so you can stand before the judgment seat of God, pure and holy, made that way by Jesus. Are you going to stand there while that all-seeing eye of God strips you bare and naked and all those dark places you tried to cover up and wouldn't admit were there, God will strip the cover off of you. And there they'll stand, and you're standing at the judgment seat of Christ. That I'll try them as gold is tried, and they shall call on my name. I will hear them. I will say, it is my people. And they shall say, the Lord is my God. And in closing, Peter has something to say to us that would be worth listening to. 1 Peter 1, 6, 7 said, Wherein you should greatly rejoice, though now, if need be, I want you to mark those words, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptation. You see, in order to get promised what God needs, 
There sometimes comes a time in our life it's necessary that God puts us through some temptations and trials. Sometimes it seems almost more than we're possibly able to withstand. Sometimes the heat gets so great that you wonder, is there going to be anything left of me after this is done, after this is over? Will I still be a Christian? Is there anything left? And mark my word, friend, there will be something left. And what is left is going to be pure and holy and acceptable in God's eyes. But he says, now if need be, that the trial of your faith there again, that's that word, personal surrender and conduct and conviction. A trial of your faith being more precious than of gold that perished, though it be tried with fire, might be found to praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Peter's saying now, sometimes examinations, self-examinations, will make us submit to the place we're at. For the fires of hell seem almost ready to consume us. You see, self-examination and letting God open your spirit and God looks at it and says, this has to come out. This cannot stay there. How's it going to come out? Well, the only way I know to get it out has put you in a refiner's fire. I put you in a place where gold is tried. That's the only way I know. I have to send you through a trial. I'll have to put a test on you. That's the only way. And if it ha has to be, and you need to recognize this, if this is the only way, and I'm going to stand before God pure and holy, throw it on me, Lord, throw it on me, burn me with fire, refine me, as silver is refined, and Lord God, let me stand there upon thy kingdom, and let me be welcomed with open arms, and say, enter into the kingdom of God, or in this rest for an eternity. Lord, do this if it is necessary. If it has to be, Lord. And he said, now, you ought to rejoice. It's hard to be happy when your very core and soul is being tried. But he said, if need be, if it has to be, you're in manifold temptations because the trial of your faith, what you're undergoing now, is more precious. And, this, and gold is worth a lot today. You know it is. But he said, now all the gold in the world can't compare in preciousness to a soul that's being tried in the furnace of fire. Because I want you to be found with praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. All of this because he don't want us to miss him. All of this because he don't want us to burn in hell. All of this because he don't want us after viewing the faults and failures of others surrounding us and classifying ourselves in a class other than therein, He don't want us in the blindness of our own eyes to falter and fail and fail to see inside this heart something that He wants out. Something that has to be out. How is He going to get it out? What's it going to take? Place drag on? No, not a piece. No, 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 no. God, huh? I can't handle it, Lord. Place drag. No, no, no. And then examining ourselves. 
Amazing ourselves with the Word of God and spirit inside. Whatever it takes. So draw me closer to you. Well, that's what I'll be willing to do. Whatever it takes. That's an open heart. That's a self-examination. That's something that God is wanting out of us as a congregation. Oh, I see things. I know they're happening and I know why they're happening. There's no joy in that. Only sadness and sorrow and a certain fear. I know that. I but I think God's saying, please, with those glaring objects before you, when I talk, don't let me just talk to them. Let me talk to you. Let me tell you what's wrong with you. Because I don't. Don't let it get so hard. Well, I have to deal with you and judge you. Judge yourself. Don't let it get so far. Well, I'll have to chastise. Let me chastise and it doesn't do anything. You know what they used to do with sons? And we need to think about this, that we're in rebellion and chastising it would do no good. After they exhausted every nation, they were taken out and stoned to death. Because in Israel, it was not allowed to be a rebellious son. Okay. okay. Now that certainly has something to do with us today. After God has exhausted every measure in beating and getting from us rebellion and making us submissive, and we still hold to that, there's a certain air of justice that has to be. That's God's written law. There's no way we can get around that. God himself bound himself by that. Because when he comes and the new Jerusalem is set up and Israel has been redeemed in all tribes, there's not going to be any rebellious sons in Israel. And you are not going to change the minute he appears. When he appears, you're going to be just like you were when he appears. And if he comes... And you are rebellious, that's the way you're going to be judged as rebellious. And hear what I said, there will be no rebellious sons or daughters in Israel. Let us stand. I realize I've taken a little bit of time. And I realize that I'm not through yet. But I have to close with these words. Peter stood and thought on those things. The prodigal son looked over and said, What a fool am I to starve right here said right there, if he had never thought, if he had never thought on the good things of the Father's house, he would have never went back. What drove him from that house? It's because God, or the Father, in a sense, demanded certain things of him, and those demands weighed, were, were weightier on him, and far outweighed the good things that he had there. This is happening today. People are tired of God's restraints. They want to find a religion that'll let them dress like they want to and go where they want to and do what they want to and let them come and go as they please. And there's all kinds of religion in this world 
But I challenge you or anybody or any ministry you go to, I challenge you to show me in God's word where you can find life like that to be lived. It's not there, friend. It's not there.